Hey everyone, it's Graham Millard. Welcome to another episode of the Columbus Bible Study Podcast. This episode is a bonus feature. It is Howard Hendricks sharing on developing convictions. This sermon was recorded a long time ago, so old that it was originally distributed via cassette tape. And so I'm excited to have it on our podcast because it's one of my favorite sermons. Howard Hendricks is a, uh, was a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he is also a uh, very well-respected speaker and, and author as well, uh, publishing one of my favorite books on how to study the Bible called Living by the Book. So without further ado, this topic he is talking specifically, like I said, about developing convictions. It's one of my favorite talks, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks so much. Each of us has two sets of convictions. The one set is the set that you would write down on a piece of paper or you would verbally explain to someone who said, what are the six most important things in your life? And prioritize them. And most of you would come up with a pretty impressive list. That's not the most significant list. The second set of convictions is the one by which you function in life. Now let me begin with the definition of a conviction. Charles Kettering said, a problem well defined is a problem half solved. I would define a conviction in this way. A conviction is a principle which I cherish or prize highly enough that I practice it in my life. It's a principle which I cherish or prize highly enough that I practice it in my life. Now, this differentiates something for us. There is a vast difference between your belief system and your convictional system. Your belief system is something you will argue for. Your convictional system is something you will die for. And it's a good thing to ask yourself periodically, what is really worth dying for? There are a lot of beliefs I have that I happen to think are reasonably important and accurate, biblically, but I wouldn't die for them. But I've got a convictional system that pervades my life that is something for which I would be willing to die. And that's what we're talking about. You prize, you cherish, Highly enough that you practice it in your life. I said the most fascinating experience I've ever had. 
had a graduate with whom the family is very, very high. He conducts seminars. He's a pastor of a church. And the board of elders called him in and said, You are an elder, and we are an elder. And we have been praying about this for three months, and we want to rebuke you as an elder. And we are asking you not to talk on the family once in the next six months or to conduct one seminar, but to go home and practice what you've been teaching us because you are neglecting your marriage and your family. And you are the worst example in this fellowship of what you are teaching us. This guy said, Brah, greatest thing that ever happened in my ministry. I just never thought there was anybody left with enough guts to do that with a preacher. That takes a lot of spiritual integrity. And you know, that's where most of us are. We just don't have that many friends who care enough to say, hey, man, you're talking a better game than you're living. I want to ask and answer two questions for you. Number one, how to develop convictions. And I want to move into two areas in the process of development. First of all, I want to surface for you what, in my judgment, are the major problems in this culture at this time that are barriers to the development of your personal convictions. See, until we understand what we're up against, we're just perpetuating the failures of the past. And we are in a very unique situation that no other segment of the church has ever faced. But you better know what you're up against, because you're deeply a part of this problem, as you will see. The second thing I want to do is to give you a model, a paradigm. It's a biblical model as to how to develop convictions, and it's absolutely without a peer. Fascinating thing to me is to discover that in my studies and research, we're constantly coming back to what the Scriptures state very clearly. You know, and some of these outfits spend thousands and thousands of dollars and hours of time with the greatest brains in America, and when they finally get to the end of the trolley line... They come up with something that, you know, you can go to a couple passages in the Scripture and find. You'd ever take the time to search them out. Second thing I want to do is to ask and answer the question, how to communicate your convictions. Because that's what all of us are in if we're involved in leadership. And certainly if you're involved in the parenting task, your primary task is, how do I communicate my convictions in such a way that they become the personal property of my disciples? And I want to give you, as time allows, six, seven, eight, ten principles. Let's answer the first question. How to develop your convictions? 
I want to sensitize you as to the issue. And I say this very lovingly, but I would to God that somebody had put me on to these early in the game. I regret that I have only one life to give for Jesus Christ because there's no other way to fly. If I had to do over again, I'd do exactly what I'm doing. This is the life that really is worthwhile. But man, I appreciate in different areas, unfortunately nobody came through in this one, that somebody had sensitized me as to what in the world I had to solve in order to develop convictions. First, my own, and then for my children, for my disciples, students, etc. Okay, here they are, six of them. Number one, we are ignoring the fact that developing convictions is a process. We're ignoring the fact that developing convictions is a process. It's a process of taking a person from dependency to interdependency. And I prefer that term to independency, though I know what you mean when you say that. I think from a Christian point of view, we are not developing independence. Man, we need open season on them. Don't raise any more independence. we got people who are independent of everybody in the body, including God Almighty. See, they're running their own show. They're doing their own thing. That's a diametrically opposed, in my judgment, to a biblical definition of a Christian. God never called you to do your own thing. He called you to do His thing. Now, let me give you a little formula that I've been working on for some time. Let me show you what I think is the formula for growth. It's the word plus obedience plus time. That equals growth. It's not just the word. That's another problem we're into. One thing that we've never come to grips with is that we have Bible preaching, teaching churches where people have been in there for 10, 15, 20 years and still don't know the name of the game. Still don't know who's on first. So I say, you know, whose problem is it? Obviously not the problem of the Word. See, the problem is the problem of response. And that's why, gentlemen, the opposite of ignorance in the spiritual realm is not knowledge. It's obedience. And when you have a person who is responding to the intake of the Word of God, you've got the most favorable climate for growth. And each of us has worked with some disciple. You know, who just takes it as fast as you can give it. And then there's another one, you know, he's about a year or two years into the mission and he just goes sour. You know, and he sits there and he still takes the notes. You know, he's very well conditioned. But not too much is happening in his life because he's not responding to the Word. But here's the key that's often overlooked. And some of you are wiping yourself out in this. That's time. 
There is no such thing as telescoping maturity. There is no mature Christian two years into the mission. Would you believe ten years into the mission? It takes time. That's the process. So there's no such thing as getting somebody into a room and pumping a guy full of convictions and saying, okay, man, now you're ready. Second, and this is deeply into our culture, the problem of the prevailing attitude of passivity. We are producing an evangelicalism, something that ought to stab you awake. We are producing what I call passive dependence. We really don't know as much about leadership as we would like to think, but there are a couple things we do know about leaders. One is leaders are not passive people. Secondly, leaders are not dependent people. But this is what we produce. We produce it in our Christian schools. We produce it in our Christian homes. And the reason for that is that our objective is erroneous. Our objective is conformity, not convictions. So we got all kinds of people who jump when you ask them to jump. Who blow their nose when you ask them to blow their nose. They do everything you tell them to do. They jump through all of the hoops. But they're passive dependents. They will never become a leader of much of anything. And that's what concerns me. See, we reacted against something when we developed relational theology. And man, are we paying a price tag. So the result is we got people who have problems on their problems. There's no way they're going to get this job done, man. They can't even get off the dime and out of their own life long enough to accomplish a mission, a task, an objective, you know, put whatever label. And what you wish is that we could just get a core of, you know, Doss Trotman's and company who could come back and just unload the truck on us once more. And say, look, will you get off your little sad banana problem long enough and get on with a job? Now, I'll tell you how this comes out as I see it. This is the person who has good intentions but no plan of action. So they take notes, and they listen to tapes, and they read books, and they go to seminars. Somebody who came to a seminar I conducted not too long ago, and we asked them to write out evaluations, and her most significant evaluation was, I really enjoyed the seminar. It was very, very helpful, but I didn't get a notebook. You know, I mean, if you're going to take a stand, let's take it on the real issues. Because that's what we equate a seminar with. It's a notebook. If you don't get a notebook, you know, what was the purpose of going? 
And they get a whole collection of them on. They'll tell you, you know, it's the red one, the green one, the blue one. They get the whole color scheme down there. See, good intentions, man, tomorrow we get organized. That's their motto. There's another strand to that that you need to think through because you get into it and it comes under a pious guise. It really sounds very good. Well, you know, we just trust the Lord here. And I say, really? For what? See, we got a lot of people who are trusting the Lord for the product, but not the process. Third, this is a great problem. It's getting greater by the week. A lack of clear-cut objectives, standards. I love to ask this question. Ask it as you're working with men, particularly businessmen. I spend a lot of time with executives, professional people. I love to ask them this question. What do you want? What do I want? Yeah, what do you want in life? What will it take to give you fulfillment at the end of the ball game? See, not now, because, you know, it's easy to get your jollies out of all kinds of things. But after it's all over, man, you're about to crawl into that six-foot hole. What is it that will really give you satisfaction? You know what I've discovered? It's very, very, very hard to find somebody who can give you an answer. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about that, but let me give you just one or two things to stick under that. Bear in mind that you achieve that for which you aim. That objectives always determine outcomes. So if you are foggy as to your objectives, you're going to be foggier in terms of your outcomes. Another thing that I discover in this area... is that we don't have clear-cut objectives because we are primarily negatively oriented. See, I find most Christians know better what they're against than what they're for. And this guy says, boy, I'll tell you, there's one thing I'm not going to be, and that's a legalist. So did you ever think of another option? That's a libertine. Which do you think is better? Just the guy that says, well, you know, I just believe it, you know, it's better to burn out than rust out. Isn't it great? But, you know, that isn't the option. Why don't you try living out? <laughs> I said, oh, man, I'll tell you, you know, the devil never takes a vacation. Well, I never knew that the devil was your model. Fourth. Hey, this is the Lulu, man. Now hang on with me on this, because we're going to take a little time on it. The problem of inconsistency. I'm going to give you four areas in which you've got to think your way through. And I mean, you have to think your way through. We are in trouble. Number one, 
The realization that your convictions are different from our contemporary society. I have a question I ask my students that I would ask you. Working with young people is a great question to ask. How much are you poured into the mold of your society? There's one thing we know from a lot of research, and that is the contemporary American is not, is not determined by ideas. He's determined by the media. But you come along and you say, look, isn't this fantastic what Jesus said? Want to save your life? Yeah, sure do. Throw it away. Throw it away. Man, that strips his gears. Don't you know you only go around once in life, and so you better get all the gusto you can get. And a guy that never drink a drop of slits has bought the whole package. So if you're working in discipleship right now, I don't care whether you're on a campus, a military base, where you are, you know what I'm talking about. Because the number one problem is getting commitment to go for broke. So when Jesus Christ says, you know, throw your life away, that's talking a foreign language in terms of our culture. A couple of us were having a good discussion. And pointing out the fact that, you see, we make a lot of the last generation, but we've forgotten that we repudiated what the last generation was infected by, and that's what's sarcastically called the Protestant ethic. And so here was a guy who lived, and he wasn't committed to Christianity, but he was committed to the byproducts of Christianity. Industry, work, honesty. I dare you to find people in our culture committed to those things. You're almost becoming a phenomenon if you are an honest person. When we were at a restaurant, Mexican restaurant, not too long ago, gave the gal a $10 bill, she gave me change for a 20. And I said to the gal, hey, you know, you gave me too much money. I gave you too much money. Yeah, you gave me change for a 20, and I only gave you a 10. You know, and she looked at me, (laughs) he's another one of those freakos. Where did they pick this one up? I got on United Airlines. I found a ticket worth 600 and some dollars for a woman and her daughter. Gave it to the agent. Guy says, what are you giving this to me for? I said, I found it. And this lady will probably come back looking for the thing. He said, I know. Don't you know that's worth money? He said, sure it's worth money. Yeah. I went over, sat down, so help me. I was reading a paper, but I, I knew this guy was watching me. You know, every now and then he'd be counting tickets and <laughs> No, there he is. When they get on a plane, he said, uh, Mr. Hendricks, uh, you'll be riding first class today, courtesy of United Airlines. Oh, it's wonderful to sacrifice for Jesus, okay? <laughs> A.W. Tozer wrote a fascinating book entitled That Incredible Christian, which he makes the statement, 
The power of Christianity appears in its antipathy toward, never in its agreement with, the ways of fallen man. You know what our problem is? We are developing too many people who are so much like the world that nobody knows the difference, including them. Second, the realization that your convictions, if they're biblical, will be different from the Christian community. How's that grab you? And if you don't think that jars some people's liver, you got another thought coming. See, the average person takes their cue as to what the Christian life is all about, not from Jesus Christ. So that's too radical. But from other Christians. The problem is the Christian community's gone to pot. You know, you remember the old story of the kid, you know, he's given a piece of wood, X length, and his dad says, Hey son, you know, saw up these boards this length. You remember? So the kid picks this up and he saw it pretty soon. He says, man, that's, that's too much trouble. Yeah, i got to pick this sad thing up every time I saw that board. So finally he saws the board and it falls in the ground, you know, and he picks it up. uses that to measure the next one. You know, until eventually you get down to a board about that long. Because you forgot the pattern. That's where we are. Going like this. Now let me show you what that does. You get kids. Your kids are in a community, just like my kids were. I can remember seeing my daughter, Bev. She was out front going like this. Runs in the house like crazy. Hey, Mommy, how come you don't smoke? You know what she was out doing? Counting all of the women who were smoking on the block until all of a sudden we come here. This odd wife. Do you ever have your kids come to you and say, uh, you know, how come we do this, Dad? We're the only people in this community to do this. And of course, they love to pit you against some other Christian parents in the church. You know, my closest friend is Dr. Campbell. We were classmates at Wheaton Seminary, and he has kids a little younger than mine, but they used to play together very close. And, you know, his kids had, my kids had come home and say to me, hey, Dad, huh? How come we do we don't do this? Dr. Camel's kids can do this. And I used to think, good night. So I saw him and said, Hey, Camel, you're a good friend of mine. He roared, he said, Good night. My kids come home and say, Hey Dad, how come we can't do this? Dr. Hendricks lets his kids do this. And I'll tell you the greatest task you ever had in your life is to develop a group of kids who've got enough guts. To stand up and say, it really doesn't make any difference if the whole sad Christian community is doing it. We don't do it. If that's what we're convinced, Jesus Christ doesn't want us to do. And if he wants us to do it and nobody else is doing it, that's what we're committed to. That develops quite a breed, a kid, to say nothing of Christian community or disciple. 
Third, and this is rough, the realization that your convictions are different from your future convictions. Remember I said it was a process. I got a student who came to seminary, I suppose 20 years ago now, out of a grossly legalistic background. And having come from the same background myself, I totally identify with the guy. And he came to study the grace of God and the Scriptures, and it was like getting saved all over again. So what did he do? Well, he reacted. That's what we do. Whenever you react against anything, you tend to set up another extreme. So he had liberty. It's no problem. Want to have a drink? He'd have a drink. You know, I'm, I'm under grace, man. Scriptures do not teach total abstinence. They teach moderation. You know, you give the whole shot, the whole nine yards. The other day he called me up. He said, i got a problem, prophet. I said, what's your problem? He said, i got three alcoholic children. See, one of the greatest problems about convictions is that you are free to choose them, but you are not free to escape the consequences of your choices. And one of the things that you come to realize the hard way is that what you think is all fired up important now in ten years will be relatively trivial. And some of the things that you think, you know, why in the world do we bring this up here? In ten years will be the most important thing in your life. That's what growth is all about. You get a new perspective. Fourth. And this is one that I've really had to wrestle with. The realization that your standards are frequently different from your parents. You see, there's an inherent danger in evaluating your parents' performance of their training. You know what it is? You tend to react against the negative of your parents without understanding what were the positives. I was telling Lauren yesterday in our discussion time together, I said, you know, Lauren, the most amazing thing to me being in the faith this length of time is that the greatest disciple maker I ever had in my life was my pagan father. And a clue he never intended to prepare me for the ministry. He built all kinds of things into my life that the average disciple maker has never thought about building into a guy's life with the result that every major asset I have in my ministry I owe to my unregenerate father who didn't come to Christ till four years before. So I remember during those early years, what did I do? I was in danger of throwing a baby out with a bath, man. You know, here's my father. He was into all of this, you know, and living for this kind of stuff. So I reacted against all of that. And fortunately, God got a hold of me to say, hey, wait a minute. You better back off and find out what did he contribute so you don't just react against those negatives. See, there are a lot of people, particularly in this generation, who are throwing up over their parents. I hope you help them work that through. 
in their disciple-making process. All right, a fifth problem. Fourth one is inconsistency. The fifth problem is confusing the convictions of Christians with Christian convictions. Sure, confusing the convictions of Christians with Christian convictions. I'll give you a simple way to differentiate them. The convictions of Christians are most frequently cultural. Christian convictions are always biblical. And the best thing that many of you can identify with, because you came out of it, is long hair. Did it ever occur to you that we went through a period of time when there were parents and there were Sunday school teachers and Christian leaders who wanted to send a kid to hell for three inches of hair? See, we, you know, we really go round and round on this at the seminary about beards. You know, we, have, we really have it. And then we have the Founders Banquet. You put the slides up and all the founders got more spinach than you would believe. And we're sitting there and the students are roaring. You know? I don't know of anything, and by the way, this is what kids do for you, and this is what discipleship does for you. And that's to have that disciple, particularly that obnoxious one. You got him in your mind? That's the one you need to grow by. You know, the guy that just won't let you off the hook with those packaged answers, who keeps coming back. Yeah, I know, I hear what you say, but I still don't understand what you're talking about. Well, why? You know, give me a chapter and a verse for this. You know, give, give me... Give, you know, well, uh, we as uh, whereupon consequently therefrom, it, uh, it pervades the Scripture. <laughs> Fine, give me a verse. Well, it's, it's hard to come up with. It's, it's so uh, prominent. <laughs> well, just open it in random and hit one, will you? <laughs> Boy, it's amazing to go back to the drawing boards and have to put down a shaft in the Word of God to find out if I've got a biblical reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing or not doing. And sometimes I think we want convictions on the part of our disciples so badly that we attempt to coerce them. And you always get an illegitimate product. Six. Last problem I want to mention to you is the problem of making all of the decisions for our disciples. There's a basic principle of Christian growth that you need to come to grips with. And that's the realization there is no growth without tension. Remember that statement in Hebrews concerning Jesus Christ? That he learned obedience. How? By the things that he suffered. But that's what we're constantly trying to keep our disciples from. Oh, don't do that, man. Oh, watch out. 
two things that you need to put in tension. One is tranquility, and the other is tension. And what you need is to have those in balance. Now watch what the extreme does. You have too much tranquility, too much equilibrium, you know what it produces? Apathy. You have too much tension, you know what it produces? Anxiety. What God graciously does by His Spirit is every time you get to equilibrium and it begins to get comfortable, He just stirs up the nest. He just drops a problem on you. Something comes unglued down at the office. Kids get sick. Wife gets discouraged. Because that's the way you grow. And again, we all want the product. We don't want the process. I don't know how many times I've had students say to me, boy, prof, man, I'll tell you, I'd, I'd give anything for your commitment to Jesus Christ. I say, no, you wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, I really would. Uh-uh. Why? Let me tell you a little of the price tag. Boy, I'd give anything. To have the relationship you've got with your wife. No, you wouldn't. You have no idea the price I paid to build the relationship I got with my wife. I don't know anybody on planet Earth that has a relationship, the quality I got with my woman. I just would give anything to give you one half of that relationship. But that costs. We lost two children born dead. And God never asked me, Would you like this course? Because you know what I would have said. Same thing you'd have said. No, Lord, let's let's make that an elective, okay? (laughs) But he never asked me. And then to preside over the funeral of my first grandchild. I'll never forget it as long as I live. I have buried, I suppose, hundreds of people. Altogether different to see your dear gal standing there with her husband so much in love and you're putting that little box down in that ground. You're the grandfather. See, so everybody says, man, you know, that's what I say. Well, no, wait a minute. See, it's things like this that shape the soul. And the God allows to come in. And what we do is fight all of this. You know, Lord, make me like your son. The moment he goes to work, we say, Lord, what happened? He says, nothing. I'm just answering your prayer. Is that all right? Well, that's too much, too. Now, let me see if I can give you some principles. Oh, wait a minute. I want to give you something before that, don't I? I want to give you a model, a paradigm. Okay, here it is. Open your papers. It's found way back in Moses' Upper Desert Discourse. Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, 4 to 9. Study it for yourself. Let me give you a little clue. There are three essentials to growth, Moses is saying. The first is the essential of incarnation. These words which I command thee shall be upon, the Hebrew says. That means wait. Burden, concern. This is not something you hold. This is something that holds you. 
And that's our problem. We got too many parents, we got too many disciple makers who are trying to impart what they do not possess. They're trafficking an unlived truth. And boy, that's what really brings you up with your disciples, doesn't it? You know what bothers you most about your disciples? I'll tell you, the same thing that bothers you most about your kids. They remind you so much of yourself. Why are you like that? Because you're making me into a disciple. Verse 7, that's the instructional component. He says, I want you to take these words that are incarnate in your life, and I want you to do two things with them. I want you to teach them to your children, and I want you to talk about them. That's the formal and the informal word. This is the word for structured learning. This is the word for spontaneous learning. And you need both kinds. Well, now, notice the context of it. See, we make a lot of this instruction, man. We get them, get them together, man. We give them the word. But you see, that comes out of a context in which the word is believable when you instruct it because it's fleshed out in your life. Verses 8 and 9, two verses that never make much sense to anybody until you get down and study them, is what we call the internalization process. He says, I want you to take these words that are in your heart and that you have communicated to your children in teaching and in talking, and I want you to write them upon the doorposts of your house, and I want you to place them as frontlets on your hands and between your eyes and on the public gates. And people say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, what he's saying essentially, to summarize it, is this. I want you to take the Word and place it on the hand because that's to symbolize that the Word is to control all of your actions, everything you do. He said, I want you to place it as frontlets between the eyes because it's the Word of God that's to control everything you think about, your values, your attitude." I want you to place it on the doorposts of your house because that represents the most intimate, personal areas of life. And I want you to place it upon the gates because remember in Near Eastern culture, the gates were the places where the courts met, where the business was transacted, what we call the marketplace. And he's saying the Word of God that you have incarnated and that you have instructed has to be internalized by the individual. Because you see here, he does it because he sees you do it. Here, he does it because you told him to do it. But only here does he do it because he wants to do it. I'll give you one test, my friends, of your disciple-making ministry that will blow your mind. It's going to be hard, so fasten your safety belts. But I dare you to try it. You can test the quality of your disciple-making in direct proportion to how many self-starters you produce. See, people who do what they do, not because you say, do it, or because when they're in your presence, that's the thing to do, but because long after you move out of the territory, they're just carrying it on. That's their conviction now. That's their personal property. Now look at the setting for this. 
He's saying that first of all, if you want to communicate truth, you've got to communicate it in a reality setting. And I hope you won't be offended by this, but this is the great problem even with navigators as with seminary professors. We are too far removed from the people we are trying to impact. And you cannot disciple across a chasm. They got to see you. I mean, they got to see you for real. It's a good thing to ask. Do your disciples ever see you when you're ticked off? So wouldn't it be interesting if we had all of your disciples here, right around a volleyball court? Wouldn't it be fascinating? Hey, look! Ooh, look, he's mine. <laughs> wouldn't it be fantastic? Yeah, it really would. You know why? Because then when you went home, maybe for the first time in your life you came across as authentic. You know, that guy blows his cool just like I do. He's for real. Secondly, it's done in a relational setting. And the key to this whole passage is questions. Look in the context. When thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, Dad, what mean the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, Son, go ask your mother. <laughs> You'll notice that in that passage there. It's in the Hebrew text. That's the reversed standard version. Why, I love disciples who ask questions. You know what your problem is? I'll tell you, same one I got as a teacher. You're answering too many questions rather than questioning more answers. Third, it takes place in a reproductive setting so that the person can function in the home, in the gates, in private and in public. And I kid you not, I think I've read everything that Simon has written in Values Clarification. I think I have read everything that comes out of Harvard University and spent a good long wad of time up there trying to find out what they were talking about. And I have never seen anybody who came up with anything that could ever add an inch to that model. You want to communicate convictions? It's really not as difficult as you would think. If you put it in a reality setting, in a relational setting, in a reproductive setting. Principle number one. Sharpen your own personal convictions. It's the principles on how to communicate. Sharpen your own personal convictions. Now, this presupposes you have identified them. My wife and I, in seminars, have discovered very few have. We have a simple little device. Try it sometimes for yourself. We just give people three by five cards and ask them to write down the three things above everything else you want to teach your children. And, you know, they people, they... They wind their watch. You know, they count the number of tiles on the ceiling. 
clear-cut evidence that the conviction level is high. My wife said to me, honey, I'm convinced if somebody lights a match in here, we're going to be on the moon. You know, it's, it's so electric. Name three things. If you only had three things to give your kids, what would you give them? See, now, if you haven't thought that through, I'll, I'll clue you. You are not communicating those things to your children. See, we're back to what we talked about last night. Determine what you want to develop before you start developing what you have determined. Well, a lot of things I'd like to share with you on that, but Tempest is fugiting, so let me give you a second one. Help your disciples devise a clear-cut set of personal objectives, of priorities. Help your disciples devise a clear set of personal objectives and priorities. And I'll tell you where I got burned on this. You see, what we're constantly doing is going into a group of people and saying, hey, let me give you my goodies. Four priorities in my life. Yeah, write the babies down. They get the finest set. And they pass them on, by the way. They tell everybody else. Some of you know how I got into this process of discipleship a few years ago with a collection of uh, laymen in Dallas. It's, uh, it's one of the most productive things that God ever brought into my life. And I just want you to know that if I die tonight, I want you to know you have seen a fulfilled man on the basis of what started with those six guys. It's still going on. Way down at the fifth, sixth level of reproduction in this thing. It just blows my mind every time I pick up some more things as to what God's doing. Just started. You know, it's amazing what you can do when you don't know anything. Have you discovered that? Well, that's how I got into this. I came home and told my wife I'm going into discipling these guys. She said, oh, great, honey, what are you going to do? And that's a good question, you know. <laughs> so I heard a guy say, I know it's a good question. That's why I ask it. I was telling Stacy today, ask the average pastor what you would do. I just led a guy to Christ. Now what would you do with him? The only thing he can ever come up with is tell him to come hear me preach. Okay, so we're getting into this thing. I'm just trying to learn. I'm just, you know, wide open, loose as a goose, trying to figure out how in the world this thing goes. And we're right in the middle of the study of the life of Christ, and we had this little principle. Anytime you had a question or something that blew you out, just stop. And so he's, hold it, hold it. This is a surgeon. He said, you know what? I just come to the conclusion that the secret of Jesus Christ's life is that he never got fogged as to his objectives. Always knew why he was here instead of in heaven. So that started an interesting discussion. And finally I said, how many of you guys got a set of priority? Objective. Prioritize. Well, you know, we did a lot of thinking about it. No, 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 but you could write them down. No, no, no. Okay, that's your assignment for next week. Well, man, that blew them clean apart. And they sweat. One guy said, man, I stayed up almost one night trying to come to grips with these things. Finally he came up with his list, comes in. Oh, got it, Doc. <laughs> you are, you lucky professor. You know, it's his whole approach, man. Luther never had it. Calvin never had it. Nobody. I got it. So we get these out, and we put them on a board. We just backed into it, and we came up with a group consensus. 
And we came up with a lovely set of priorities. Then, you know, the old kidney began to function, and I said, okay, now, next week, let's go out and figure how you spend your time, your money, your energy with respect to these priorities. How's that? Hey, great, that's good. Well, they never knew what they were getting into. One guy said, oh, wow, I almost didn't come. I'll guarantee you there isn't a man or a woman in this room that isn't into the same problem, including the speaker. Give me a list of your priorities. There he is. I said, okay, let me follow you around. These students come to me and say, boy, I want to be a man of God. Fantastic. That's great. What do you think that includes? Well, you know, you've got to be a man of the Word. Good. Is that what you're committing yourself? Oh, yeah, I want to be a man of the Word. Great. Let me see your schedule. My what? Your schedule. I don't have one. Yeah, you got one. No, I don't have one. Yeah, you got one. No, yeah. It's probably a lousy one, but you got one. Finally, he gets the picture. You look at the schedule. There's nothing in that schedule that will guarantee you accomplish that objective. See, so what it means is that's really not a prioritized objective to you. It's a nice verbal statement. Sounds good. Student comes into my, just the other day, a guy came in. He's graduated number two in his class this year. Almost a straight A average right across the board. You know what he said to me? Prof, I graduated at the top of my class and at the bottom of my spiritual life. I said, is that really, you know, does it really bug you? Well, he says, yeah, now it does. He said, you know what this shows? This just shows your objectives. Your objectives were A's. What did you get? A's. You know, does that really floor you? He began to think, and I says, you know, Prof, I guess that's it. I guess I really don't want to be that much of a man of God. You are just as spiritual as you want to be, as you choose to be. I'll take you a long time to choke that one down. Try it on for size. You want to be a man of God? Oh, yeah, I want to be a man of God. God provided all of the conviction, all of the resources? Oh, yeah, all the resources. Then how come you're not spiritual? Next point. Now, I'll tell you why that's true, just to give you a little educational background, my judgment. The reason why that's so significant is that in education, the process is more important than the product. See, it's the fact that he goes through the agonizing process, you know, of coming up. There's my list. So he's got to sweat it through. He, and by the way, I hope you use this little exercise I gave you with this. I used to take a little more of these. It's very interesting. See, you get guys put their boat on here. See, they put all of the things. The guy's got his wife and his boat, you know, and who? <laughs> You know what your laughter is? Your laughter is a laughter of recognition. Because that guy really sweats through some of this thing. Boy, I've seen some guy pull it out and he puts it back. You know, look over that thing. Agonizing process. Third, 
relationships always precede requisites. Relationships always precede requisites. That's why you really don't need a whole lot of rules if you're really into the picture. And I'll give you another clue. It's a dead clue. If you've got a maximum of rules, it's because you have a minimum of relationship. The greater the relationship, the more minimal the rules. I've been married to this woman 32 years. Man, I wish you were here. You just look at her, you know why I'm so excited. You know how many rules we have in our marriage? Would you believe we don't have one rule? We never came up even with that stupid rule, I'm going to call you once a day. You know what that shows? A poor relationship. Nobody has to tell me that. I don't have to get my little book out and say, call Gene today. <laughs> That's what we do with our Bible studies, don't we? So we can't figure why this guy never gets off of that tack. You know, to just really fall in love with the Savior. So you've got a re quality relationship, man. To me, the greatest thing in the world is to keep in touch with that woman. Nobody has got to tell me that that's what I ought to do. What else do you do when you're related to that kind of a person? See, we're tipping our hands. We're constantly trying to pump people up to share their faith. Won't you please share your faith? Tell somebody about Jesus. See, that shows they really don't have that intimate a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a little principle to stick underneath this thing. People tend to accept your ideals your philosophy because they accept you. And they tend to reject your ideals and your philosophy because they reject you. Do you think prayer is a good thing to teach your disciples? Anybody here who wouldn't vote for that, putting it on the list? Do you ever notice how Jesus Christ taught prayer to His disciples? He didn't do what we do. See, I thought he'd say, now look, man, sit down. i got a tool I want to place in your hands that absolutely blow your mind. It's a privilege of prayer. Never did. He just prayed. You know where Luke 11 comes? Sometimes put that on a timeline. That's a long way down the line. Every time they were looking for him, they found him on his knees. Until finally my two buddies, Philip and Andrew, I surmise, say, hey, Philip, you know what? That's important. I really think you ought to ask the Savior about it. So he says, Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't that interesting? That's the only thing they ever asked Jesus to teach them. Now, you ready for the application? Hold on to this one. 
would anybody ever ask you to teach them to pray because they found you so much on your knees? I told you it would be rough. I had a graduate student in my office some years ago started this whole train of thought. Guy said, hey, Prof, can I spend some time with you? Got a problem? I said, sure, man, come on up. We came up, we sat down, he shared his problem, we went to the Word, found an answer. I said, why don't we pray about it? So we got down on our knees in my office and we prayed about it. He got up, he shook my hand and said, Prof, thanks, thanks, thanks very, very much. He said, you know, I've been here for six years and you are the first professor that ever prayed with me. Thanks a lot. And he walked out the door. And when he closed it, if you think I thought that was a compliment, you have no idea of what was involved in the experience. See, the Lord picked up a two-by-four and dropped it on my fat head. And I said, man, do you mean to tell me that it's possible for a guy to be in an evangelical theological seminary for six years? And nobody ever prays with him? Apparently it is. And that's why some of you have probably had a greater ministry than all of the rest of us as professionals have put together. Because it's your habit to spend some time with that guy and pray with him. And he thinks you're the greatest because he can't even get his preacher to do that. He's too busy, you know. Bringing in the kingdom. Laying new planks every day. Fourth. Explain your convictions to your disciples. Now there's an idiocy abroad. And by the way, it's answered by this model. The idiocy is, if I just live the Christian life so qualitatively, I'll never have to tell anybody about it. My friend, if that were true, Jesus Christ, the only perfect man who ever walked this planet, would never have had to share the gospel with anybody. And they would all come to him as Savior. See, that's what he's saying. It's not enough to have the incarnational aspect. It's not enough to flesh it out in a reality setting. You get to take time for instruction. You got to explain it to him. Now, how you do that is the key. You know what you need to do periodically? You need to sit down with a guy and say, Hey, man, I just want to take a couple minutes to explain to you where I'm coming from, okay? You don't have to buy into this. I'm not interested in cramming anything down your throat. I'd just like you to know what the Lord has formed in my mind by way of conviction. Yeah, that's great. And you start sharing this kind of thing, and the old guy says, Ah, that's interesting. You really think that's important? You know what I've discovered? 20 years later, there's a short, there's a delayed fuse in this. That stuff goes off in his mind. You know, I learned the most about the will of God from Donald Gray Barnhouse. I used to work with him at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, working with his college kids. 
And we used to go out to his home, spend time with him, and he'd teach us all kinds of things, mostly just fill our minds with who God was. Greatest contribution he ever made. And one day I was out there and I said to him, Hey, Doc, do me a favor. Sure, sure, glad to. How do you find the will of God? Typical brusque manner he whipped around and said, Son, 90% of the will of God will be found from your neck up. And he turned around and took off. You know Boy, what a delayed fuse. You know, then it was that I started a process of realizing why that guy brainwashed us with the Word of God. Because the will of God is found in His Word. And when you are brainwashed with the Word of God, you begin to think instinctively from a biblical perspective. You don't have one-sixteenth of the problems most people have with the quote-unquote will of God. You have to delayed fuse. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus Christ said to His disciples, what I do now, you don't understand, but you will understand later. That's a great principle of discipleship. We think they've got to understand everything we tell them today. And a lot of it goes right over their heads, but not really. You know, long after you're gone, a guy says, Hey, it was a guy back here in, let's see, 79, I think it was. See, I have students who can quote me and who will say to me, You know, Prof, you said something that turned my whole life around. I say, Really, man? Tell me what it is. They quote it. I say, Man, that's fantastic. Let me write it down. So said, well, you gave it to us. I don't even remember saying it. It's amazing what God does with instruments like us. If you're really sensitized, you know, just to make yourself available. But whatever you do, don't let anybody go out of an exposure to you wondering where in the world you are. See, we're developing a lot of people coming out of discipleship with both feet firmly planted in midair. That's why they have no conviction. Let me give you one, two more. Feed your disciples' responsibility. Feed your disciples' responsibility. You've got to give a disciple enough developmental rope so that he can grow. I'll give you judgment. Take it for what it's worth. And remember, this is a judgment of a guy who's on the outside but probably more on your team than anybody you'll run into. So this is the voice of a friendly critic. It's my judgment that one of the weak areas of the navigators is that they keep the rope too tight. Too much structure. Too much dependency. And people do not grow that way. It's just like your kids. Boy, always sitting on those lids. But it's not a process of lid sitting. It's a process of building inner fortification. Because the harder you hold that lid down, the higher it's going to go when you take your hand off of it. 
And the one thing you learn a hard way is that casualties are essential to the process. You have often been asked, you know, why did Jesus Christ have a Judas? Many reasons that I can give you in answering that question. You know one of them? To provide you with a model? I think disciple makers get more wiped out with a casualty than anything else in their whole experience. I think of one guy I had at the seminary. I don't know of a guy. In 28 years of teaching, and I poured more of my life into it. Two weeks after graduation, he left his wife, pregnant, was shacking up in Houston. The state district attorney is still looking for that joker who ripped off I don't know how many individuals and companies. Drunk, so drunk that he couldn't even identify himself. Now, you walk out of that kind of experience, and believe me, you are a different person. You know, you, you develop a healthy respect that it's God who's really running the show. And you're really not, you know, you don't have as much together as you like to think you got. And it's my experience that God will give you just enough success to encourage you and just enough failure to keep you dependent. And that's a good balance. It's like that one. And if Jesus Christ had a Judas, my friend, don't ever think you're going to get through the process without somebody shafting you and Jesus Christ in the process. You better prepare yourself for it. I'll give you a final one. This is very high on my priority list. That's why I saved it to last. Created desire the part of your disciples to relate to Christ and His will. Not primarily to you. But it's a hard thing to pull off. The most sincere disciple-makers produce the greatest perverts. A pervert is a person who is too attached to you. See, a student say to me, you know, Prof, I'm going out to do what Jesus did. I said, fantastic. What did Jesus do? Well, you know, he discipled men. Great. Are you Jesus Christ? Oh, no, no, of course not. He said, you better be careful doing what he did. Because I happen to believe that Jesus Christ had all of the gifts. I also happen to believe you don't. And that's our problem in discipleships. You build all of your limitations into your disciples. Create a desire to relate to Christ and His will, not primarily to yourself, to your organization, to your cause. See, a Christian is a person who follows Christ, not you, not me. Remember that passage we quoted, follow me as I follow Christ. Very important comparison there. If I'm not following Christ, you better not follow me. I dare you to, to teach this to your disciples. It will save you all kinds of headache to say nothing of the frustration on them.
if what I teach you, if what I attempt to build in your life does not resonate with what Jesus Christ is telling you to do on the basis of his word, you listen to him, not to me. And that's what you need to teach your children. We are more people out of the will of God than I have found in years. Covered over with true guilt. Because they know they ought to do what Jesus Christ wants them to do. But they've been programmed to think that until Pop says that's what you do, they don't move. And that's a bad news item. I can still tell you the exact day when I sat down with every four of my children and said to them, Son, daughter, I want you to know right now I've written it in my will and I want you to know it before it's read publicly that if the will of God for your life ever contradicts what I tell you to do, you have already made your decision. You're going God's way. You see, that's a hard word. But that's the kind of word we need to hear if we're going to get to the place where we develop some people who've got some convictions, who are doing what they're doing, not because Hendricks says so or, or anybody else we got running around in the Christian community, but because that's what God wants me to do. We ought to obey God rather than man. And I happen to believe that includes your parents. i got a guy I'm working with right now. He still comes to the Bible study. He comes. You know what he told me one day? He told me in the locker room. He said, look, Hendricks, I just want to level with you right now. I like you. I enjoy having you around. I'm going to come to your Bible studies. But just don't cram that Jesus stuff down my throat, okay? Because I'm just not ready to go that line. And the old guy comes, and he sits there, and he hangs on. He hasn't missed a session since we started the thing three years ago. And the last time I saw him, he said to me, uh, I'm moving. <laughs> Smiled, took off. That's a profound word. It's obvious he's not moving away. He's just getting limp. But we don't like that, Right? See, because we're Americans. Americans are instant everything, including instant maturity. Let's get it over with. Let's not horse around with it. 